cost to turnover. Um, I do think this is a bit of a, there's always going to be employees wherever you are that are current may look for their next best thing. But that being said, what we've in, what we've inherited is this timing of a wage study discussions about increased wages and two officers that are in search of their next best thing. And in regards to the citizens and their public safety, hundred um, percent, that is first and foremost, what's important anywhere, especially in the times that we're in. Um, and of concern is that you pointed out the other cities, um, um, right. This isn't just us. And uh, when you make news that you don't have law enforcement, it makes you nervous. It, it, it's upsetting. It's upsetting to see, um, but wishing you the best of luck. Good luck, sir. Thanks so much for coming on. Mayor Mike Schmidt. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Thank you. And that does it for us. Banfield starts right now. everybody. Welcome to the program. Uh, this is Banfield. It is Friday. We made it. We made it through the week. <laughs> it's not even an eve. It's actually Friday. And we are right at uh, the Labor Day long weekend. So I hope you have some nice plans all ready to go. I've got a great Friday night show for you to kick things off right. Uh, we have been talking a lot about Dennis Rader, the bind, torture, kill, serial killer who's serving 10 consecutive life sentences for 10 murders that he's admitted to. But there are other murders now that are being investigated, cold cases that may, may end up being his. We're not sure, but we have some news for you tonight. First and foremost, some of the photographs that uh, Dennis Rader took of himself reenacting his kills, reenacting his torture, and reenacting the murder scenes. Uh, some of those photos have taken on brand new uh, light and interest in these new cold cases. There are not only, you know, sick and twisted photos uh, out in, you know, the, the, the wild and, and in, in places where they shouldn't have been taken, that the, the children played there, the, the home, a church, like all these places where he reenacted these sick and twisted murders. Um, there's also hotel, you know, motel rooms where he would throw himself a party for one, read enact the murder, dress up in the stolen lingerie and clothing of the victims and reenact it. So tonight, his daughter is joining me live on the program to actually tell us what's in those pictures. She recognizes a lot more than we do because many of them were taken in places where she lived and where she played and where her grandparents lived and where, you know, they went to church. So it's disturbing to, to think that there's so much there that, I mean, listen, there's just so much there that's disturbing about Dennis Rader, but that he brought it home to his family as well. And then on the resolution side of these other cold cases, tonight we have an exclusive for you as well. The detective who's working on one of the cases that's considered to be in play, these these five cold cases, one of the cases in Missouri, the detective who's been working on it for 17 years, she's going to join us with some brand new information. Um important information that she thinks when all of this is said and done is is really critical. Uh, She thinks she's able now to very, very close to being able to pinpoint where Dennis Rader actually was uh, when Shauna Garber was killed. That's the case that she's um, investigating in Missouri. So she's going to join us live on the program with that exclusive information and a photograph that's never before been made public. It's disturbing, so I'll just give you a couple of warnings. I, I try to give you as many warnings as I can when we have these very uncomfortable pictures and evidence, etc. But um, that this one photo we're going to show you tonight is um, it's actually 
how do I put this? Uh, it's it's of remains. Hard to make out that they are remains, but what's critical in the photos is that you can see the sleeves uh, of the jacket that Shauna Garber was wearing bound in the different ligatures. And so it's critical because he was the bind, torture, kill, serial killer. And he had a specific kind of binding. So we're going to compare the photos. Um, And then also, Brian Koberger, of all the reasons to fight cameras in the courtroom, of all the reasons, the one that he's giving today really takes the cake. Apparently, he thinks we're only interested in seeing his crotch. I can't make this up. I I can't make this up. This is the argument put forth in legal motions by his defense team as to why cameras shouldn't be allowed in the courtroom. I'm going to tell you why they said that, and then I'm going to tell you why it's wrong. It's really wrong. And I'm going to tell you what it was that led to them thinking the media is only interested in Brian Koberger's crotch. All right, let's start, however, with this new information about um, Dennis Rader's bind torture photos, his personal snapshots that he kept, dozens and dozens of them. They were retrieved from his home when they arrested him back in 05. And I'll warn you right now, we're going to show the pictures, but they are not pictures of the actual victims. They are pictures of Rader himself reenacting his crimes, reenacting his murders, reenacting the torture, the bondage, even the scenes where he killed these victims. Uh, They're hard to look at, um, but they at least are not pictures of the victims. And they're also very creepy, but they're also insightful for investigators. This is why they are so important. These investigators who are looking at these five different cold cases are looking at details in a lot of these pictures. So big warning again, when I show you some of these pictures, um, the details within the pictures matter because they may actually lead to the resolution of five cold cases for five families out there. What's also fascinating about the pictures is what Dennis Rader's daughter sees that we don't see. She sees her grandparents' basement, and she sees uh, items of interest that she recognizes, blankets that she slept on while camping. She sees... um, places where her family went to church. She recognizes a lot of things. She, she even recognizes items that belong to her father that he's wearing, that she herself um, would, would do in the laundry for him. So it's difficult. Well, I've got the graphic warning up there long enough. I want to show you some of those pictures again because there were these pictures not only of him reenacting himself, um, buried like he buried his victims, made up with wigs and makeup bound in chairs, um, lying like this out in the woods somewhere. It's discussed by many of the experts and detectives that he was on scouting trips when he did these things, hoisting himself up in trees like he did to his victims. And then these party pictures in motel rooms. This one in particular, Carrie Rawson uh, is going to discuss with us in a moment because there's a lot in there that she recognizes. That's her grandparents' basement. Um, So what's critical, though, is the details that we now know from pictures we we didn't really think about you know, almost 20 years ago. I want to bring in Carrie Rawson right now. She's live to discuss these. Carrie, you've seen a lot more of these pictures than, than we have. You've seen a lot, a lot of pictures uh, that the public has never seen. What haven't we seen? Can you describe for me what you've seen that we haven't? Oh, um, good evening, Ashley. Um, this is probably only about a handful of pictures. Um, 
when I uh, flew into Osage, uh, they started showing me all of my dad's records. Uh, there's probably about 200 bondage photos that my dad's taken. Um, it's really important first to note, to note that they're taken by my father. They're Polaroids. Uh, he uses a cord. He came up with a system. He carried this stuff around. He did these at hotels. He did these in churches that he broke into. He did them in our church. He did them in my home when we were gone. Um, he actually did one in my um, college dorm room when I was out shopping with my mom in August of uh, 98. You can match what he's doing with um, his journals. Um, he's digging. So what we what the public is not seeing is, is evidence right now in these cases because he's reenacting actual crime scenes. And we're trying to match up now um, missing persons and um, murdered with possibly these photos. And He's wearing victims' clothing in some of these, and you can match them with timeline. And so we're seeing, like in Garber's case, uh, she, we believe, was murdered or at least dumped on Halloween in 1990. A few days later, he goes and does a big bondage in a church in um, West Wichita. Um, and we believe, based on his bondage choices in that photo, that he's a series, too, where he's reenacting several things that happened to a victim, and he's wearing bindings that match Garber, and then there, and then there's a blanket that's missing from Garber, and we think it was under Dad on that bondage, and he literally had that blanket in our house, and then he took it camping, and he literally covered me with that blanket when I when I was cold. And it's hard to even believe that that you're having to relive this, and and I think public should know that they should be thankful that you're doing this with law enforcement to help them and inform them of what you know and, and give the information that you know. Let me go through some of the photos specifically. I want to start with the first one. I'll ask our control room if they can just put up the photo that's called the sand photo, um, because I want to ask you about what you know regarding the location of this photo. Well, first I know that shovel, that was our camping shovel that we, we used like for fires. I believe that's out at Lake Cheney. Um, he would take his camping on a sandbar. He didn't like to camp around people, and I didn't understand why, because as a little girl, you know, you want the public restroom and stuff. My mom didn't ever camp, so it was me and my older brother, and we would go to bed, and he would do this bondage, and that's a sandbar out at Cheney, I'm sure. Now, one of the questions about that one is we don't have any confirmed cases of my father burying anybody. Why is he reenacting a burial? It's very concerning because we have some women that we think have been buried. Uh, Project Prairie, Hayes. 1983, we're looking at her as a burial. He talks about burials with Dr. Ramslin. He even talks about digging a grave in 1990 when he was out in Hayes on the census. Yet he says that he got, he dug a whole grave, but then he had to call my mom, like to check in. Like, come on, like you dig a grave and then you don't put somebody in there. So we have to go figure all of these things out now. The second photo is a photo um, of a, a wrapped body. And I think that you have mentioned before um, that, that it was taken in a church. Do, is that true? Yeah, but that's actually dad there. Now, somebody can fact check me and I'll reconfirm it. But that is actually dad. Uh, that could be Mrs. Hedge, but I believe that is dad actually pretending to be Mrs. Hedge. He took Mrs. Hedge, our neighbor, uh, down the street. He murdered her in our house between my house and my mom's parents' house in 85. I was six. He then took her in her car to our church at Christ Lutheran. He put her in a side room where my mom's choir robes were. He dressed her up in other bondage and took photos. They look different than that. As far as I know, my investigators have said that's my father at another church pretending. Again, we don't have any bodies that were found exactly like that. So is there one that we're missing that looks like that? 
because we can actually go and look at crime scenes that we do have a re recovered body and we can match them. And we're, we've got massive, massive multiple concerns. And this is a very, very ongoing, very hot developing situation. All right. The third photo is the photo of your father um, suspending himself, hanging himself from a tree. And I was wondering if you knew of the details um, in these in this picture that stood out. Um, well, we're concerned about this one because, again, of his good cases, we don't have any entries, but we do have some young young children that were found um, in, uh, in trees, and that is a victim's clothing. Um, um, I would have to have my notes in front of me or we would need to pull an investigator. And, of course, these are active investigations. But if we know exactly that that slip is missing from somebody or that person is missing and they had that slip or we, we have a crime scene that looks like that, see that mask on him? Uh, he used that mask up until 91. Then he left it on Davis's body because he didn't like how she looked when he de decayed. And so that mask, so we know that is pre-91 and that's actually fall of 90, right around the time of Barber. That mask comes into play there. And he talks about, with Ramsland's book, he talks about being hung, hanging himself in a tree with the sumac and you see the fall colors and that's out in West, that's out in, excuse me, I'm sorry, that's out in Eastern Kansas. Is there anything about the, the socks that he's wearing that um, stood out to you as well? Oh, oh, well, so it, in 05, um, my law enforcement officers did not warn us about these bondage photos after my dad, dad pled guilty. And my, and my dad wrote us letters and he said, look, a lot worse stuff is coming out. I'm so sorry. And he was actually more embarrassed about this, about the cross-dressing and, and the, the dressing up and the, the, the reenactments. And when the, the law enforcement released these images in um, August of 05 at the sentencing. And we think we, they, we think they kind of did it just to mock him, really. Um, and you see in some of these, his tube socks, he, he wore like sports socks were white with like the blue bands. And like, of course, I did the man's laundry for him by the time I was probably 10 years old and up. And so like, I knew those socks, right? I had washed them. I know those hairy legs. Like, and then there, there's dad cross-dressing and naked. Uh, I was 26 finding out dad had murdered 10 people and it took me a very long time to process these but now now i'm able to help law enforcement like down to very minute details but that's because i've had a lot of trauma therapy there's also the pantry picture um where he's um i think this that you've said he's in your grandparents' basement in, in this picture. And it looks as though there's, you know, common pantry items like Charmin toilet paper. And, but you recognize this? Oh, yes. That's my grandparents' basement, his parents. This is over on Seneca Street, right behind him in the curtain. You see the stairs coming down right behind in there. We would play hide-and-seek, me and my cousins down in that basement. We'd turn off the lights and play hide-and-seek. It was like the perfect place to hide. Now, my grandparents stored extra stuff, and they were gone a lot. Um, they were snowbirds, so they would be up north. And then down south in Texas, they'd be gone for months. And he would do bondage, and he hot, he hid crime, evidence of crimes, including murders, at their house, going back to the seventies. Now, this one is important because he did this one right after Mrs. Davis was murdered. That's her slip and her stockings, and and possibly and how she was bound. That could be her her blanket. Now, that blanket is different than the one missing in Garber. Garber has a darker black and red. This is a red and white. Okay, because we know that we know he murdered Davis. We know those are Davis's clothes, and he did this right after Davis. If we go back a few months to the Sumac one, and we go back to the Garber one that is not public because it's evidence in a crime, we're very, very, 
very concerned because why do we have Barbara missing? We have her bound a certain way. A few days later, he's going and reenacting that murder. I am going on record as speculatively saying if I was law enforcement, I would have arrested my dad a week ago on Garber. All we need is DNA. We have body stuff to test. We need to get it tested. The FBI, Ortham, somebody needs to step in. McDonald County is not doing their job. And I have no faith or trust in Lori Howard. <laughs> May I ask you just about the, the blanket in that um, pantry photo that's in your, your grandparents' basement? Um, you mentioned it's the, the red uh, red and white check blanket on the bottom. There's also what appears to be a blanket hanging behind him. Are either of those the blankets that you said you went you went camping with and that you would sleep, he would cover you with or that you would sleep on? No, the green blanket was always there. It was just a kind of covered area or something he, he hung up. That red and white one, I do not, that was not from us. It, it's probably from somebody's crime scene and we've got to figure out where. The blanket that we're talking about, Shauna Garber had a red and black blanket. Now, it looks different. We've seen it in bondage photos. That The one that it's not public with Garber, that's the one he took camping, and I, I can still feel the material and the scratchiness. Like, he literally could have murdered her on it. He did bondage on it, and then he took it and used it with me for camping. Carrie, this, this is such difficult um, subject matter, and I know that you have been working with the police, helping law enforcement. But are you okay, you know, even even though it's been 18 years, are you okay processing this stuff? Um, well, as you know, because you've been taking care of me, like there's ongoing issues. Like I was notified Sunday of an old crime that's new to me, and I just came out of the hospital from COVID. So this is really only my first day I've been on camera. Um, I have to take things a little bit of a time, so I had to process what I found out Sunday. Um, I, I had to process some interviews during earlier in the week and so I, i'm i'm doing okay tonight um well like i'll be okay and then new information will come up and so i just have to take that time and so i just as a trauma victim abuse victim i really just have to be firm set my boundaries and say okay guys i need a breather and then i'll come back and we'll push this investigation and i'll help you as much as i can and so it's really just being mindful of my own needs and advocating for myself are you able to tell us about what you learned Sunday night, or is it too soon? Um, at, right now, um, Sheriff Verdon told you on Monday that it's, 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 it's the Oklahoma case, number two, and that's all I can on record. Um, I have to wait for my investigators because it's not, it's not an Osage County one, and so we have to wait for the county in Oklahoma. Uh, it's a very sensitive investigation, and it, it requires utmost protection, and I will do everything to protect that investigation with my life because it's so sensitive and so important. Well, listen, Carrie, I'm, I'm very appreciative that you took the time to talk with us tonight, especially since this is such difficult material. And um, thank you for the work that you're doing as well. We'll keep in touch. And do call us and let us know when you're able to. We appreciate it. Um, thanks, Ashley. I appreciate it. Carrie Rawson joining us live tonight. Um, I also want to bring in um, a friend of ours, uh, a friend of the show, Mark Garagos. He is a trial attorney. He's the co-host of the Reasonable Doubt podcast with Adam Carolla. Mark, this is such an incredible story. You know, two decades later, the possibility that we might have crimes that are solved from all of these evidentiary pieces that have been sitting kind of in the vault, you know, for, for two decades. That That's great, but it's also um, problematic in that whenever things are cold, Cases are old, evidence is old, memories are old, witnesses die. Is it 
going to be something that they can solve and actually pin on Dennis Rader, or is it going to be extraordinarily difficult given the passage of time? Well, you know, the the wonderful thing in a lot of ways about this whole area of the law is it both inculpates decades later and exculpates decades later. So, you know, the I always give credit to to um, to Barry and Peter for kind of pioneering the innocence project. But at the same time, they've shown that you can also cold case solve things as well. And and I don't think it's going to be incredibly difficult. A lot of times, if you have pieces of evidence that you can then, that at the time you did not have either the technology, the science to utilize uh, and kind of extract the evidence, but it's been developed since. And if it was, the evidence was preserved and it didn't degrade and you can put it together. Uh, yes, I think you can you can solve a lot of crimes and you could also, as we've seen repeatedly, you can also free a lot of innocent people. So it, it's a wonderful kind of a progression and a win-win. Well, that won't happen for him, that's for sure. He won't be freed on those 10 that he's copped to. He's serving 10 consecutives on that. But I am curious, what is, what would you, if you were his lawyer, what would you talk to him about just regarding... These are death penalty states, some of them, right? So is there is there a reason that you can see why a man who just relishes in regaling a live courtroom about the details of his murders? I remember watching it live and feeling sick to my stomach. He enjoyed every moment of it. Is there a reason why he won't cough up any further uh, victims if he, in fact, killed them? Well, it's, a, it's kind of a very complex, complicated area. The... I have often said when people say, how do you do what you do or how do you uh, deal with the clients? And I've said it's very, very rare in my experience that you that you meet or represent somebody who is just truly evil. Um, this may be one of those cases. I don't represent him, but, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had periodically clients over the many decades I've been doing this who you recognize are truly evil and don't have the psychological capacity or the normal reservoir of a consciousness of guilt or remorse or anything else. So when you have those kinds of situations, it's all situational. It's all transactional. It's a it's a very difficult um, situation to be in to try to uh, communicate, if you will. And since it is in many uh, in off times when it comes to somebody who is this type of person, when it is transactional and there is no upside, so to speak, and the upside could be, uh, you know, are they going to take the death penalty off the, the table? I can't imagine any situation where any prosecutor would ever say, I'm going to go to bat for you and, and get you out and you're going to roam around again. Although I've had a case many years ago where where federal prosecutors actually used a uh, a serial killer to try to convict somebody on identity theft. And, and that person later walked free. Well, so we know one thing. I, I, no one's yeah. offering VTK a free, exactly. a free pass anytime soon. Exactly. Hey, um, Mark Harris, thanks for thanks for. That's not going to happen. Yeah, thanks for being on on this Friday night and, and uh, wishing you and your family uh, a joyous and peaceful weekend. And thanks for being here. You as well, Ashley.
Always good to have Mark Garagos' perspective on this still to come. Detectives in Missouri are saying that they are actually getting pretty close to pinpointing exactly where Dennis Rader was on the night of a missing woman's murder back in 1990. And a photo that's never been made public of the woman's bindings at the murder scene may actually hold some of the clues. And that detective on the case is live with me next. Nighttime is relax time. The best of classic TV time. Hey, that's great. Watch Three's Company, The Jeffersons, and Barney Miller. Wonderful. Only on Antenna TV. Check your cable listings. Antenna TV. Did you know that the month of September celebrates National Virginia Day? Well, when you can expect new online instant games from the Virginia Lottery every second and fourth Tuesday of the month, it's hard not to appreciate Virginia that much more. Visit VALottery.com slash Tuesday. It's happening. You ready for this? The biggest names in golf. We're coming. In the hottest new place to see sports. Live Golf on the CW. Welcome to the party. Yes, baby. Live Golf is in full swing. Rock solid. Catch all the action. What a shot! The biggest names in golf. Watch live coverage of Live Golf. The CW. And here's Heather with the weather. Well, it's beautiful out there, sunny and 75, almost a little chilly in the shade. Now, let's get a read on the inside of your car. It is hot. You've only been parked a short time, and it's already 99 degrees in there. Let's not leave children in the back seat while running errands. It only takes a few minutes for their body temperatures to rise, and that could be fatal. Cars get hot fast and can be deadly. Never leave a child in a car. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. I'm Naheem Hines, proud supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. My mom has muscular dystrophy, and the MDA helps her and kids like my buddy Ethan. My name is Ethan, and I'm 12 years old. Thanks to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and people like you, I have more hope than ever before. And MDA funds over 150 care centers for kids like me. For over 70 years, MDA has been transforming the lives of people living with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and related neuromuscular diseases. Learn more at MDA.org today. You're listening to News Nation. To get America's fastest growing news channel on your screen, go to joinnn.com. What's gotten lost in a lot of news coverage is trust. Dan Abrams and Elizabeth Vargas on America's fastest growing cable news network, News Nation. News Nation is the place that people can come because they trust that at the least we're trying to be straight with them. Every point of view is represented. That's what we do. We only earn that trust, keep that trust by every single night fulfilling that mission. To find News Nation on your screen, go to joinnn.com. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. Heather and I had an argument just like any other couple. I was lost. I had snapped. I had a gun and I was going to take my own life. Heather helped me realize that there was still a life to live for the better of myself, my family. My weapon is now safely put away. A moment of crisis can happen to anyone. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. Some people won't give you the real talk on drugs, but it's time we know the facts. Fentanyl is killing people. It's a powerful opioid, often made illegally and commonly mixed with illicit drugs. It can even be pressed into counterfeit pills that resemble prescription medications. 
Just two milligrams, about the size of a few grains of sand, could potentially be lethal. This isn't an ad to scare you, but it is an ad to make you think twice. Get the facts. Go to realdealonfentanyl.com. This message is brought to you by the Ad Council. A lot can happen in six seconds. A rodeo ride, a dramatic basketball win, and the world record holder can solve a Rubik's Cube. Six seconds is how long it takes for an 18-wheeler traveling at a safe speed to come to a complete stop. And in those six seconds, that truck will travel the length of two football fields. So please, give them room. Never cut in front of a large truck for any reason. Our roads, our responsibility. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. So he says he killed 10 people, anyway, on paper. BTK. But there's a lot of speculation it was a lot more than that. Um, In fact, there are five cold cases right now that could be. They're being investigated as potentially being Dennis Rader's work. Um, We have some exclusive information tonight on one of those cases. It is a case in Missouri. A young woman by the name of Shauna Garber. She went missing in um, she went missing October 26th, 1990. And her remains were found. She was uh, hideously bound. Just horribly, horribly bound. I'm about to show you a picture that's never been made public before of the bindings. I am going to give you a graphic warning because some people get very upset about this. If you have kids in the room, they should not be seeing this. Um, You're not going to see body parts. Uh, This is a difficult picture to see because you will see the the binding of Ms. Garber's arms uh, because her jacket was really all that was left, her her uh, denim jacket. So you'll see two denim arms um, with the with the various bindings. And the reason um, I want to tell you that and show you that is because it is not entirely certain that the detectives feel really comfortable that this is the work of Dennis Rader, despite all of these bindings. Shauna was hogtied with six different ties. So those are the denim sleeves of her denim jacket. And you can see all these ties. The ties were uh, nylon and camping ropes, coaxial and telephone cables, paracord and clothes lines. And what's important is that since detectives believe that Shauna disappeared October 26th, 1990, it's important to find out where Dennis Rader was on that day. And we are pleased uh, to have joining us exclusively tonight, Lori Howard, who is a detective who's been working on this particular case for 17 years. Um, Detective Howard, thank you so much for for being with me. And I know you're you're so steeped in this case. You've even spoken with Dennis Rader face to face, which I cannot even imagine uh, what that's like. You're, you feel as though you might be getting close to some resolution. And if you were just listening, um, we just had Mark Garagos on who said what's critical in solving cases is sometimes solving them um, one way or the other because excluding someone is also solving a case. What are your thoughts about the information that you're getting regarding Dennis Rader's whereabouts on the night of October 26th, 1990, when Shauna disappeared? Well, thank you for having me. Um, so a couple of things I want to address is I can't tell you, and I don't think anybody's going to be able to tell you exactly where Dennis Rader was on October the 26th, 1990. But I can tell you we have, we have information that is confirmed that there are absolutely no records 
that would indicate that he was at a Boy Scout camp or a camporee in Roaring River, which seems to be something that's out there right now, that they can put him, say, within uh, an hour's drive of her uh, dump site. And I can tell you, we have spoke to Boy Scouts today, and they have told us there's absolutely no records that exist uh, during that time frame because that council was absorbed by another council and those records no longer exist. So if there is evidence out there that would absolutely confirm, which we're hearing in the media, that he was in Roaring River at a camporee, we would really like to know where that evidence came from because the Boy Scouts are saying it doesn't exist. And that's interesting because, um, you know, his his daughter, Carrie, who was just on in the segment before you, said he was absolutely on a Boy Scout trip just days before, uh, very close to where Shauna Garber was um, was discovered. And I should tell our audience, she was found abandoned in a farmhouse near Pineville, Missouri. It's about a four-hour drive from Park City. Where is the discrepancy? Well, we don't know. Um, if there's evidence out there that's being presented to the media, it certainly hasn't been given to us to evaluate. So what I can tell you in our file, um, we have several things that I can talk about. One of them would be this, this red blanket. We have a missing persons report on Shauna, and it lists the items that she was missing with, and nowhere do we have a red blanket. Now, that's not to say that if this red blanket had Shauna's DNA, or Dennis's DNA, or fibers that connected to the scene, or any number of things like that, absolutely, let's look at that blanket. But our records don't indicate that there's a blanket missing with her. Our records don't indicate that there's any type of fibers or any type of DNA associated in our crime scene. So we're just at a loss as to where that would would come about. Detective Lori Howard, uh, thanks for being on, and we appreciate the work that you're doing. Please stay in touch with us and keep us up to date. It just feels like something is coming, some kind of resolution. You bet. And I'm going to add one, way or add the one other thing real, real quickly, yeah. if, if you've got just one second. I spoke with Shauna's yeah. sister and Shauna's brother today, and the reason that these things are not tried in the media, um, the reason these things aren't uh, cases, aren't put in the media before there's evidence, is because it hurts the family. And at this point... McDonald County states unequivocally that there are speculations, there's facts, and there's evidence. We follow evidence. And to this date, we have no direct evidence linking Dennis Rager to our case. We have an open mind, and if we're wrong, my sheriff says it'll be the best wrong we've ever been. I, I, I quote him on that. But right now, there's no evidence. Well, I appreciate that. Lori, thank you. And please do give our regards to the family of Shauna Garber. This has got to be just excruciating, um, you know, so many decades later. Appreciate you being on tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we will continue to follow this case as the developments continue to come in. And this next story, I'm not exactly sure how someone is supposed to behave when they're led into a courtroom as a murder defendant, when the TV cameras are all rolling. But uh, Corey Richens had an interesting demeanor in her courtroom today, her murder case. She's that wife accused of killing her husband with fentanyl and then writing a children's book to help her kids deal with all that grief. Anyway, in those first few appearances, she cried through a whole bunch of tissues. But today, well, let's just say it was a whole new day. I'm going to take you inside the courtroom next.
this was not a day for crying. No, sir. It was not a day for crying. I'm not exactly sure what was going on. But I do know that when Corey Richens went into court for the last few visits in her murder case, she was a puddle. I mean, crying like crazy. But this is her today. She's not crying. Something's changed. I don't know what it is. Um, maybe it's just the flurry of paperwork. I don't know. Because this day today in court was supposed to be a day where they actually um, hammered out key dates for the trial. It was a scheduling conference, sort of a fancy way of saying, let's get on the calendar. And they didn't. They didn't set a date for the preliminary hearing. They didn't. They couldn't do it. They said they couldn't do it because there's just so much discovery in this case. It's not just a murder case uh, where the allegation is that she poisoned her husband, Eric Richens, with a fentanyl-laced Moscow mule um, after taking out lots of life insurance and, you know, making plans. Um, There's also the drug charges, right, from buying the drugs, having the drugs. Uh, The allegations are that those are all drug charges. So murder and drugs and life insurance and all the rest, I guess it means there's just a lot of discovery. And that's why there's just too much to do. uh, And they couldn't set that date today. You might remember this story not from the poisoned Moscow mule. You might remember what happened after Eric Richens died. She's left with these three little boys. She wrote a children's book about grief to help those little boys get through it. So if she's actually the killer, that is rich. You wrote a children's book for your kids about killing their dad if you're the killer. Anyway, no tears today. All at the same time, her friends have come out saying, oh, Corey did not do this. Corey did not poison him. It was an accidental overdose that he wanted pain meds and she accidentally bought fentanyl by accident. I want to bring in Greg Scordis. He's an attorney for the family of Eric Richens. So, Greg, that, lots going on. Uh, let's talk about that last bit, though, the allegation from friends that she didn't do this at all, that Eric wanted pain medication and she accidentally bought the fentanyl. What do you make of that? Eric didn't do pain medication. He didn't need pain medication. He had no history of substance abuse at all. He was in no way, shape, or form uh, did he need medication. He wasn't in pain. It just wasn't the way he was. He was a very healthy outdoorsman. He uh, took very good care of himself. He didn't use pain medication. And I could understand her friends feeling that way and wanting to protect her and wanting to cover her and wanting to hope the best for this person who who may very well have committed an incredibly monstrous act. But uh, he was not a person that took pain medications. Can I ask what the reaction has been from Eric's family after we learned that the prosecutors took the death penalty off the table? If Corey's found guilty of this crime, she will not face the death penalty. How did they feel about that? I think there was some realistic uh, uh, realism, I guess, there from the family, recognizing that uh, in this state, uh, a woman was unlikely to get the death penalty. Uh, Certainly the the burden of proof for the state is much more difficult. You have 12 jurors instead of eight. Uh, You have uh, two hearings, what we call a guilt phase and a penalty phase. She has no prior criminal history. And I think there was really... Uh, some understanding that it was probably unlikely to get the death penalty. And frankly, uh, Ashley, in Utah, we have this particular crime. It's called aggravated murder, carries the potential for life in prison without the possibility of parole. And I think that would be just as satisfying for the victim's family as having to go through 
years of appeals and and whatnot to hope that there's a death penalty at some later stage. Yeah, aggravated murder and um, criminal homicide and possession of a controlled substance. Very, very serious crimes that she's facing. Uh, Greg, we'll, we'll stay in touch with you because we're not even at the scheduling yet, um, but I guess they're going to do that in November now. Thank you for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. You bet. Nice to be with you again. Greg Scordis joining us live. Uh, the story out of Utah. Coming up, um, quite a headline coming out of the Brian Koberger case. And Newsweek may have actually said it best with this one. Brian Koberger's attorneys fight over footage of his crotch. Yeah, you read that right. I'll explain it next. Apparently, Brian Koberger does not want us looking at his crotch. Can't make it up. Can't make it up. I say that because last week his defense filed a motion to ban cameras from his courtroom. And this is what they said. Mr. Koberger is entitled to defend himself against capital criminal charges without cameras focused on his fly. (laughs) Okay, so this all stems from a recent court appearance that he had. Uh, It was all about DNA discovery. Um, And I guess uh, some social media user Uh, took a full image and zeroed in um, on his crotch. So a coalition of media outlets has gotten together to respond to this. Look at that. That's the that's the photo that they're upset about. Um, So the coalition of media outlets objected and said no photographs or camera coverage focused on Mr. Koberger's fly. Rather, one random X user, that's the former Twitter, uh, modified a photo showing Mr. Koberger and a deputy entering the courtroom by cropping it to a very small size, focused on his belt and adding a reference to Mr. Koberger's fly. So they are going to still deal with this issue. It hasn't been ruled on yet. So many other issues haven't been ruled on yet either. Joining me now, Kristen Cameron and Alina Smith are the moderators of the Facebook group University of Idaho Murders Case Discussion, now boasting more than 220,000 members. They've been following the case from the beginning. Ladies, good to have you back on the program. Alina, let me start with you. This is crazy, this discussion. What what are the members saying about this whole flygate? Um, Hi, Ashley. How are you? Good to have you. Good to have, good to see you. Um, well, to be honest, um, obviously we've been discussing this a lot on our page. And so this picture has, you know, made its rounds on, you know, on our posts and comments. And we honestly thought that, you know, the discussions with him not having to wear the orange jumpsuit and just gets to wear, you know, the, the suit and, you know, what kind of privileges and the, you know, the differences with that. And people thought that he may have had us like a stun belt around him. And that that's why, like, they were like focusing in and zooming in on that. And honestly, that's what we were wondering. And that's those were the questions that we were asking on on our page. And they were wondering that maybe that that's what they were using instead of handcuffs or like, you know, the the cuffs around his feet. And maybe they had something called like a stun belt, which I've never even heard of that. But that that's oh, what I we have. were wondering. 
Yeah, that, I'll tell you what, stun belts work. Oh, you betcha, you betcha. And stun belts really <laughs> work. Um, but that's a really good point. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I hadn't thought of that, but that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I know that the members are so meticulous about looking at every little detail. They're also very helpful in the investigation yeah. when they see those details. Christine, this whole business about waiving the right to the speedy trial, I think everybody was so excited for this to start. Yeah. In November, was it such a deflation all of a sudden to hear that it's just not going to go as planned? Yeah, obviously we were all really disappointed, uh, but mostly we were disappointed for the families. We were all hoping that everything would be on course um, for October and the victims' families would have some sort of closure. Um, but both sides, you know, agreed more time would be beneficial for proper preparations. But let's face it, we expected this. Um, and we don't want to be rushing through the trial and causing any reason whatsoever for the defense to seek a new trial. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Um, anything else, Alina, that the cyber sleuths are noticing? Um, you know, we're just kind of, we were disappointed about the trial. So everyone's focusing now on other things. Obviously, um, the Gabriella Vargas has been a huge topic on our page, the genealogy expert. So that makes us talk about the DNA a lot. The timeline has become in question a lot. The difference between the 3 and 4 a.m. difference when that was the first timeline that the law enforcement gave us and then changed it to the 4 or the 5 a.m. timeline. So they're just picking that apart, which, you know, obviously it's just there's nothing there to pick apart. But, you know, they're just finding well, the door down and is caught up. Everything. You know, I have a feeling certain, there's going to yeah. be some robust discussion um, when they have yeah. this when they have this hearing over the the cameras in the courtroom. That's oh, absolutely. Christine Cameron, absolutely. Alina Perfect. Smith, love having you on. Thank you both. It's good to see you, and uh, we'll see you soon. Nice to see you exactly. too. Thanks for having. Okay. All right, ladies. Thank you. All right. His crimes were so savage and so brutal. His name still sends shivers down the spines of true crime fans all over the world, and that's generations after his last kill. In just a moment, a twisted anniversary for a monster that stalked his prey at night. A monster that may have inspired the modern-day serial killer we know today. And if you think you know scary, you don't know Jack. That's next. It was 2.30 a.m. August 31st, 1888. 135 years ago yesterday, Marianne Nichols, also known as Polly to her friends, trying to make a living as a single woman in the 1880s in the poorest part of London's Whitechapel district. And like so many others like her, many of them moms, she resorted to the only skill she had, which was sex. And just over an hour after her shift started on the streets of London, her body was found lying across a gutter. Killer had slit her throat, but didn't stop there. He drew out her suffering stabbed her repeatedly in the abdomen. And then, to make it even more witchy, he stabbed her twice in the genitals. Polly Nichols is believed to be Jack the Ripper's very first kill, and this week marks the 135th anniversary of the start of his spree. For the next three months, Jack the Ripper would take at least four more victims in nearly the same way he took Polly's life. Only, like the other serial killers we know, he became more savage with each of his kills slitting their throats and disemboweling them with a six-inch knife, leaving them in the streets, to the anguish of the police and the papers. And to make matters worse, when they tried to track him down, the police were taunted with all the letters from the killer. Maybe he got tired of killing, maybe he died, I don't know, but suddenly the murders stopped in November of 88. 
We never did find out who he was, but 135 years later, you can almost hear the haunting echo of the foggy, deserted cobblestone streets as he followed in his victim's footsteps. What you can't hear, though, is how many serial killers followed in his. That's Banfield. Cuomo's next. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo, and welcome to a News Nation Town Hall. Crime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.